Once again, it's good to see everybody. We're really glad to have you here this morning. Uh, and again, I just want to wish everyone a happy Father's Day and uh, just a good time to be able to, uh, to honor and celebrate our fathers. And so uh, I'm very thankful uh, for my dad and thankful for uh, his leadership and his uh, just example in my life and uh, thankful to be able to do ministry together. Uh, I had this terrible oral surgery and uh, back on Mother's Day, my dad bailed me out and gave the message that Sunday I was supposed to be preaching. And um, so he's a good dad. <laughs> um, thankful for uh, my kids. And uh, this year I get to celebrate four kids. And so uh, just really thankful for that. So I'll decide later who's the best. Uh, uh, anyway, you know, it's funny when we think about, you know, fathers and, uh, it, you know, fatherhood can be challenging in a lot of different ways and a lot of different respects for sure. Um, I remember uh, a story about a, a wife who was kind of sharing with her husband the adversities of her day and just kind of pouring out her heart of all these different things that she was dealing with with her kids. And uh, the father responded by saying, you know, you really just need to embrace the trials in your life. And so she walked over and gave him a big hug. Uh, it's true, though, isn't it? Sometimes, at least I'll just speak for myself on that one. So, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, sometimes as dads, we have the liberty, right, to tell great jokes and uh, to have great insight. Uh, the powers of sarcasm uh, can be a, a teaching tool uh, when used properly, of course. Uh, but there's a lot of funny things that dads ask. And I was thinking about some of the questions uh, that sometimes you'll hear dads ask. Maybe you can relate to this in terms of what you've heard or maybe even what has uh, come out of your mouth. But uh, here, here are just a few. You know, when somebody asks um, for something, uh, they, you, know, you might hear a dad say, uh, say this. They'll say, what can I do you for? You ever heard that one before? Uh, a lot of times you'll hear dad say, you know, how many times do I have to say this? Have you heard that one? Here's another question that they'll ask. Uh, maybe when a server brings a bill, what's the damage, right? What's the damage? Um, maybe they'll say, how many times do I have to tell you? Or maybe you've heard this one. Uh, this is kind of a classic dad line is, are you working hard or are you hardly working? That's right. Um, maybe if, uh, you know, a dad sees like the neighbor washing the car or something, they'll say, can you do mine next? Yeah. Right? They, that's a good question they like to ask. Uh, if you go uh, outside and then you come back in right away, uh, chances are he'll ask, back already? How was it? Right? It's kind of a, a common one. Um, maybe if your kids are listening to music, you know, you might hear this one. Do you call that racket music? Um, if, you know, they'll just knock on the door in the bathroom and say, did you fall in? Uh, what are you doing? Are you going to sleep all day? Have you heard that one before? And then, of course, maybe uh, one of the more popular ones are these last two. Uh, if a kid leaves the door wide open, were you born or were you raised in a barn, right? And then the last one, if they're asking for something, do you think that I'm made of money, right? A lot of good questions. 
that are asked by dads. Uh, this morning, uh, we want to look and think about some other questions that are good for us to think about and to ask. And they're not just humorous or uh, just kind of, uh, you know, uh, or run of the mill, so to speak, but they're important questions for our lives. Uh, Pastor Paul has begun a series, as many of you know, in the book of Esther. And Esther is a narrative. Um, it is a narrative book on the providence of God. It's a historical look at God's work on purpose and behind the scenes, uh, but it is also theology. Um, and all theology is drawn from history. There's a lot of confusion, I think, sometimes about where theological truth comes from. Many religions and people uh, have kind of put together this sort of, amorphous, sort of amorphous religion. You know, it's a collection of ideas. And they think that spiritual truth is drawn down by uh, intuition or some type of emotion or some induced mentality of some you know, heightened or elevated sensibility. But all theological truth is drawn out of history. It is all outside of you, and it is outside of me. It is not something that is inside of us. It is not drawn out of your experience or my experience or anybody's experience. Theology is drawn from God acting in history. And the Bible is a record that God has inspired of his acting in history. And so we all know that God is God because he acted in history to reveal himself. And the revelation of himself is found through actual historical events with real people written down by people that were given perfect recall and perfect understanding of what they wrote by the Holy Spirit. And so when we talk about the Bible, we're talking about a book of history. And this is absolutely critical. And when we think about Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 and the whole Bible, right? It's history. It's not poetry or fantasy or analogy or parable. It is history. It's revelation. It might even in some situations be history yet to come, but it's about history. And nowhere in the history of Scripture is the setting more dramatic than around the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we have four historical books on the life of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all agree. They have perfect alignment and agreement. They tell the story of God coming down in human flesh in the form of Jesus Christ. And so the four Gospels are really a point of high importance in terms of biblical history. And if we look in the four Gospels, the most compelling part of history of Jesus is the part that we are looking at right now in the book of John, leading up to the cross and the resurrection of Christ. And so we want to look at history of our Lord as he approaches the cross as recorded in Scripture. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open with me to John chapter 18, and we're going to be in kind of the latter part of chapter 18 and the beginning part of chapter 19. But these are real events real historical events that have important and historical meaning for our lives. And the reason that matters is because it answers real and meaningful questions that we are expected and demanded to answer as human beings. 
Now, the crux of this is maybe found in Matthew chapter 27, verse 22. And Pilate is speaking to the crowd in reference to Christ. And it is in the context of what we're going to be looking at today. It is the trials that Jesus is going through before his crucifixion and burial and ultimately his resurrection. But Pilate says this to them in verse 22 of chapter 27 of Matthew. And he says this, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And I would argue that this is the most pivotally eternal question for each one of us today. Is what will you do with Jesus who is called Christ? And of course, in this context, in Matthew chapter 27, their response was, let him be crucified. And see, for each one of us, there is a question that's being asked, what will you do with Jesus, who is the Christ? And we have an opportunity to respond, and basically, however we respond, it boils down to two things. We can either say, let him be crucified, we can reject him, or we can respond and say, Let my life be crucified and receive him as Lord and Savior of my life. And so we want to look at this event, these trials, and understand the people that are part of this. It is a group of people who are wicked, people who are sinful, and in some way or another are culpable for great injustice. And the one person in this account who shines out as righteous and holy and pure and all glorious is Jesus Christ, who is the one who is being accused of crimes. The self-righteous, the ones who are the purveyors of justice, are the ones who are doing evil. And the one that they are accusing is perfectly pure and righteous. He is a victim. He is mocked. He's despised, he's ridiculed, and he's sentenced to death. And yet, it is his purity and majesty that dominates the scene against this backdrop of their sin. And shining out of this ugly darkness of an unjust series of trials is the bright glory of the Son of God. There are six trials, as we've talked about before, that Jesus faced. There are three religious and three civil And we looked first at the three religious trials, and today we're going to look at the three uh, civil trials where he stands before Pilate. And like I said, I want to think about this in terms of this question. What shall I do with Jesus, who is the Christ? I think that this message, just to be really upfront with you, it really has three broad applications for us. One is that you might be somebody who's here today and you've never trusted Christ as your personal savior. And that you have raised, either consciously or subconsciously, questions in your mind that have given window to reject Christ. They've become reasons to justify not receiving Christ. And so for you today, I just want you to consider the responses of Jesus himself to some of these important questions. Uh, For others today, you might be somebody who's trusted Christ and you have a personal relationship with him and you've acknowledged who Christ is in your life and yet there is this reality 
that sometimes that the way that we live our lives does not align with what we say we believe. In other words, we still question who Christ is in the decisions that we make, even though in a theological way we might be in agreement with what the statement says. Or thirdly, and I think that this application applies for all of us, is that we know people, we know people who raise questions about who Christ is. And some of these questions are meant to push back and to distance themselves from Christ. And so as believers, we want to be able to respond. We want to have a certainty in our own hearts about the answer to these questions, but we also want to be able to respond in a way that draws people to Christ. And so I've titled this message, Questions of Rejection. In our world today, there are questions that are raised, and sometimes the questions seek to understand the truth of God. They're sincere. But far too many times there are questions that are intended to be the foundation of rejection. We can question ideas and truth as a way to negate them in an effort to dismantle the things that we don't like or the things that we don't want to do. This happens religiously, pun intended, to the person of Jesus Christ. In this passage, we see the questioning of Jesus that reveals the underlying rejection of himself as Messiah. And so if you will, let's look in John chapter 18 and let's look at four questions and responses to Jesus Christ. In chapter 18, starting verse 28 uh, down through 32, we see the first one, which is the questioning of his nature. One of the primary ways that people want to push back on the person of Jesus Christ is to question his nature. Look at verse 28, it says this. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat Passover. And so this is the back end of the religious trials and now Jesus is being moved to Pilate's headquarters where the civil trials will begin. Verse 29, so Pilate went outside and said to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so here we have the first question. And the question that Pilate asked is, what is the accusation? What is Jesus being accused of? See, in our culture today, and sometimes even in our own lives, we are accusing Christ. We are accusing who he is, accusing his nature. It was logical for Pilate to ask for the official accusation, right? It's the indictment of this trial. Instead of stating the charges clearly, though, the Jewish leaders kind of beat around the bush a little bit, and it probably made Pilate suspicious. And ultimately, they came up with three accusations. One was that Jesus had led the nation astray. They said that Jesus was leading the people away. But what was the reality is that Jesus had not subverted the nation, either politically or religiously. 
He had publicly denounced the Pharisees and their hypocritical religious system, but he was not the first one and certainly not the only one to do that. In fact, Jesus had blessed the nation and ultimately he was a blessing to all nations. He was bringing hope to the nation. And so it was a false accusation. They also made it an accusation that he opposed paying tribute to Caesar. But what do we know? We know that Jesus did just the opposite of that, that he taught that we should submit to the authorities of the government and that, that is over the people. In Matthew chapter 22, he talked about this when they were asking him you know, about the coin and they were saying, you know, what, who does this belong to? And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Uh, Jesus was uh, supportive of the establishment of government and he taught that there should be submission and respect to those that are in authority over them. And so it was a false accusation. And then thirdly, the third accusation that they made was that he claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, the king. Now, the interesting thing about this accusation is that that was true, but it was because his claim was true. Uh, Jesus did claim to be king, but not in a political sense, not in a sense to necessarily overthrow the Roman government at that particular time, which was a disappointment to the Jewish leaders and to many of the Jewish followers. Sometimes it's difficult to sort of manage this system of politics and religion. And, and what place does politics have in uh, you know, Sunday morning in a church. And, you know, there's a lot of different thoughts. And I'm not going to get into all of that right now. But here's what I would say is that in these trials, one of the things that we see is that Jesus was very much political. I think that there is so, so many times that people want to say that, you know, Jesus just distanced himself from all of those things. And I'm not sure that that's a correct understanding historically of the context of this culture. Uh, Jesus certainly, though, while being political, was not partisan. He was not aligning himself with any person. He was not aligning himself with any even human ideology or sort of world system. He was aligning himself with the Father. But he was political. In language, there's something called word scripts, right? It's words of association, so I'll, I'll give you an example. You might say, like, here's three words. We have uh, doctor, hospital, stretcher, right? All of those words are in association with, like, medicine or healthcare, right? We would understand those three words to be joined together by that common understanding, by that common sort of topic. Well, here's another word script. Think about this. What comes to mind when you hear these words? Gospel, kingdom, belief. What comes to mind? For us, it comes in terms of a, a religious mindset, a matter of faith, right? It, it, it's about what orients us to the word of God and in our relationship to Christ. But at this particular time, those words would have had different significant meaning in terms of the word script. It would have brought together a different picture that wouldn't have been as much religious as it would have been political, 
Think about this. Gospel, the word gospel, was a political term that communicated political victory. It means good news. But the term was used when the messenger would return from battle, return from war, and proclaim victory to the people. And so he would bring the gospel. He would bring the good news. But they would have understood that to be in a military sense. Uh, The word kingdom Uh, The kingdom of Jesus was announced as a new society, a a new social and political order. It it was about a reign or a world order, if you will. Uh, The word belief, a lot of times we think about this in terms of like faith, right? That it's it's what we put our faith in. Uh, But the word belief at that time was used often to speak of uh, like a demand or allegiance to be used with Uh, in reference to the trustworthiness of a commander or a devotion to their king and emperor. And so these are words that were being used that would have raised to the surface very political ideas. And yet, Jesus was not partisan. He, He was not talking about a gospel in the sense of a military victory, but in the sense of a spiritual victory. He was not talking about kingdom in the sense of a new earthly world system, but rather a new heavenly system that was going to be established by God. He was not talking about belief just in the sense of trusting political leaders or human leaders, but a belief in the sense of a devotion and allegiance to our God. And so this language that he's using is, is being sort of used by the Jewish leaders to stir up accusation against the, the authority of the Roman government when in reality what Jesus was doing was he was establishing his own authority and his own kingdom and his own demand for allegiance for those that would follow him. And so what is the accusation? There are many that want to lower and demean who Christ is that he was just a good teacher, he was just a moral person, Um, that he was a sort of zealot, a a, a religious zealot that was seeking to divide people. But the reality is, is that his nature was sinless. And so the rejection came because of religious pride and self-righteousness. The nature of Jesus is found in the sinless sacrifice. Jesus is perfect and holy. And so why did the Jewish leaders reject the Messiah? There's a a lot of different reasons. And part of it had to do with the sort of political thing that they were expecting him to establish an earthly rule and to overthrow the Roman government. And when they realized that that was not going to happen, then they turned on him. It didn't fit their expectations. In some ways, this happens for people who come to Christ and They expect Christ to just solve all of their problems and take away all of the issues that they have to deal with. And when those things don't happen, then they walk away from Christ. But the underlining reason that the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus was that he threatened their religious pride and their self-righteous spirit. John chapter 18 verse 28 brings this out with great irony. It says, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. 
And so you notice this gross hypocrisy and religious pride of the Jewish leaders. They didn't want to be defiled by setting foot in a despised Gentile residence. And so they could, you know, wanted to be able to observe their religious ceremony. And, you know, that was all important to them. But, you know, when it came to murdering an innocent man who had done nothing but good for the people in the last three years, they had no problem with that. But I think for you and I, before we begin to point fingers at the Jewish leaders, you know, we, we've got a Matthew 7, right? Follow and make sure that we don't have any logs in our own eye. Religious pride and hypocrisy are not exclusive sins to Jewish leaders. How often do we think as Christians like the Pharisee did in the parable of Luke chapter 18, who said, God, I thank you that I am not like these other people swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. See, it's easy to take pride in our own church attendance, our own morality, in our own good deeds, and then we can look down on those who uh, don't outwardly look as good as we think that we are. And it's even easy to take pride in our Bible reading and our Bible knowledge. But Paul says, you know, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You know, we have to be careful about this pride and self-righteousness because we can inadvertently, even as followers of Christ, reject the nature of God who identifies him as being the perfect, pure and holy, not us. It's not us that has it all together. It's not us that has it all figured out. It is Christ and Christ alone. And so a true understanding of what the Bible teaches about God's holiness and our sinfulness and God's grace as demonstrated on the cross leads us to pour all contempt on all or pour contempt on all of our pride. It leads us to view people who have not trusted Christ with love and compassion because we have to realize that except by the grace of God we would be just like them. Or, I'll speak for myself, worse, right? That's the reality of grace, that God has saved us, not because it's what we deserve. Religious pride and self-righteousness keep people from the Savior. Well, let's look again in verse 33. There's a second question that happens. There's the questioning of his nature that seeks to diminish the sinlessness and the perfection of Christ, but then there is a questioning of his authority. Look at verse 33. So Pilate answered his headquarters, or sorry, entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. 
And so we have this second question here. Are you the king of the Jews? Uh, This is a question that's recorded in all four Gospels, but Pilate was not expecting the answer that Jesus gave. Jesus essentially asked, well, what kind of king is it that you're talking about? Are you talking about a Roman king or a Jewish king? Are you talking about a political king or a spiritual king? It wasn't that Jesus was avoiding the question here. It was simply that he wanted to clarify the matter for Pilate's own sake. He wanted to have Pilate consider, well, what kind of king is he? Jesus admitted that he was a king, but that his kingdom does not come from the authority of the world. His kingdom is spiritual in the hearts of his followers. He does not depend on worldly or fleshly means to advance his cause. If his kingdom were from the world, by now his followers would have assembled an army and they would have fought to release him. But notice here that Pilate's concern is the source of his kingdom. Where did Jesus derive his authority? It was a question of his authority. In other words, Pilate's trying to figure out who has the greater authority. Is it Jesus or is it himself? In verse 37, Jesus explains who he is and what kind of kingdom belonged to him. It says that he was born, right, indicating his humanity, but that he came into the world indicating his deity. It meant that he had existed before birth. And then even beyond his origin, He also explained his ministry. His ministry was to bear witness to the truth. Jesus won people to his cause, not by force, but by conviction and persuasion. See, Rome's weapon was the sword, but Jesus' weapon was the truth of God. It was the sword of the Spirit. And so it was a different rule altogether. But Pilate couldn't see it. And so we see that there is rejection because of power and control. Sometimes rejection happens because of our own pride and self-righteousness, but sometimes it happens out of the desire for our own power, that we don't want to submit to someone else's authority. We don't want to have to acknowledge and turn over control to someone else. The authority of Christ is in his position as the king of kings. I know it might be easy to sort of poke at Pilate. He was morally weak and self-serving. He was not a strong or wise leader. But maybe put yourself in Pilate's shoes. Would you risk losing your job? And would you risk a, a comfortable way of life? Maybe would you risk your life in order to defend and protect someone else? or in order to defend and to protect what is right. There are many times in our lives that we have a question of our own integrity and character. What will we follow? What will we do? And are we willing to give up control? Are we willing to lose power in a situation, in a relationship, in our jobs, in order to do what's right? Pilate didn't have anything against Jesus, and he taught that Jesus was innocent. He, he, he was very clear that he thought that Jesus was innocent of charges. But to do the right thing and to free Jesus would have cost Pilate everything. And so he rejects Christ, thinking that he's protecting his own interests. But in reality, Pilate lost his soul. As Christians, we're 
called to walk in fellowship. And we talk a good talk, but when it comes to our own power and position and control, then it's easy to have a way to begin to start questioning and justifying so that we don't have to give up much, so that we don't have to lose much control in our lives. And so for each one of us, we have to ask ourselves a question at the end of the day, and that's this, is who has the authority in our lives? Like, who really has authority in your life? Is it Christ, or is it you? Who has decision-making power in your life? You know, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what dilemma you might be facing, no matter how you feel, who has the authority to make decisions in your life? Is it me? Do I make those decisions based on how I feel? Or have I submitted to the authority of Christ and allow him to make those decisions based on what's right? Is it his word or is it our flesh and our feelings? Well, let's look at another question. Chapter 18, verse 39. It's not just a questioning of his nature and it's not just a questioning of his authority, but then there is a questioning of his purpose. Verse 39 of chapter 18 begins this way, but you have a custom that I should, he's speaking to the people outside again, that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So what do you want me to release to you? Or Sorry, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Verse 1 of chapter 19, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again to them, and he said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. So there's a question here about his purpose. And the question is, is should I release the king of the Jews? See, Pilate knew he had sent him to Herod, right? And Herod had found no guilt in with him. And so there was nothing worthy of death in Jesus. And so Pilate confronts the Jewish leaders and he encourages them to release. And he's hoping to sort of strengthen this suggestion by offering to bargain with the Jewish leaders. And he offers Barabbas. It's interesting here. There is no explanation of how a mob chooses its heroes. No doubt many of the Jews might have admired Barabbas for his cunning and courage and his willingness to fight against Rome? And had they honestly compared and contrasted these two candidates, if you will, the people would have had to vote for Jesus. But when a mob is manipulated by crafty leaders in an atmosphere of patriotic fervor, it loses itself and it starts to think with its feelings instead of with its brains. And their condemning vote said nothing about the Son of God, but it says a lot about themselves. 
And so there is the rejection of the purpose of Christ. A rejection because of indifference and self-preservation. See, the purpose of Christ was to be our substitute. To, to take on the role of substitution for you and I. And they were questioning this. You know, questioning to release Jesus. Not because of crimes that he had committed. Pilate thought that he was not guilty. But they're questioning this substitution. And the purpose of Christ is found here in Barabbas. The robber, the murderer, the rebel who is freed instead of Jesus. Now, take a minute here and, and just think about Barabbas. Because in a lot of ways, you and I can be like Barabbas. We are like Barabbas, I think. Well, let me share with you maybe just three ways that that can be true. One, we're kind of like Barabbas in that Barabbas should have been on the cross instead of Jesus because he was guilty and he deserved to die. Now you might say, well, hey, I'm not a robber. I've never robbed anybody, but you know, we've all robbed God of his rightful glory and his lordship in our lives when we've sought our own power and our own control. You may say, well, at least I'm not a murderer. And Jesus said that if we've been wrongfully angry with our brother, then we've murdered him in God's sight. You may say, well, I've I've never led an armed rebellion uh, against uh, the authorities, and that might be true, but uh, in our own state, we are rebels who have rallied against the king of the universe in sin. We've all sinned many times over and over against God and his rightful rule. And so we're no different than Barabbas in that we were the ones that deserved to be on the cross. Secondly, Barabbas did nothing to earn his pardon. He wasn't pardoned because of his good behavior or because of some promise to reform. If anything, he was pardoned because of how notoriously evil he was. He couldn't brag after he got out about how he deserved to be pardoned. He couldn't claim that he was pardoned for his exemplary behavior. It's just like what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. Says that God justifies the ungodly not through their good works, but by faith alone. And then thirdly, we're kind of like Barabbas, in some ways exactly like Barabbas, in that Jesus died in Barabbas' place. Barabbas, whose name means son of the father, should have been the one on the cross that day, but instead the one who was the eternal son of the eternal father hung in Barabbas' place. And Jesus died in his place. And you and I know that Jesus died in our place. He died in my place. He died in your place. We deserve to be there. And to reject Jesus is to reject his purpose. And to reject his purpose is to reject his place of substitution on our behalf. And when we reject that, then it puts us squarely where we deserve to be. On the cross, paying for the penalty of our own sinfulness. But Barabbas' pardon was not automatic. You know, Barabbas could have just sort of spit in Pilate's face and said, I don't need your pardon, crucify me. And no doubt he would have probably been crucified and they would have found somebody else that would have gone free. In the same way, the pardon that Christ offers us is only effective to those that receive it. The Bible promises whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And so like Barabbas, the guilty rebel, 
you and I have to accept the pardon that Christ's death offers us. And that leads us to the fourth and final question. There's a questioning of his nature. There's a questioning of his authority. There's a questioning of his purpose. And then finally, to sort of cap it all off, there's the questioning of his deity. Look at chapter 19, verses 8 through 16. It says, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered into the headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement in the Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so Pilate delivered him over to be crucified. It's powerful and it's sad. The question here is, where are you from? Right? The Romans and the Greeks, they had this mythology about different gods coming to earth and living among men. Pilate was no doubt impressed by some of Jesus' answers and he probably wondered if Jesus was a god And, you know, he had this whole thing with his wife who had a dream and warned him about uh, convicting Jesus. And so the text tells us that Pilate was afraid. But Jesus didn't answer him. And it wasn't, you know, because he didn't want to answer. It was because he had already answered. I think there is a basic biblical principle that God does not reveal new truth to us when we fail to act on the truth that we already know. Pilate was not personally interested in spiritual truth he was full of fear and anger it's interesting as a side maybe note is that when Israel asked to have a king God gave them Saul and they rejected God the father when they asked for Barabbas they rejected God the son and today they are rejecting the pleading of God through the through God the Holy Spirit and yet there is a day that will come that they will see their king and believe, and the remnant will be saved. But once again, we see a rejection. There's a rejection that comes out of pride and self-righteousness. There's a rejection that can come out of power and seeking our own control. There's a rejection that can come out of just indifference. But then there is this. There's a rejection that comes because of pleasure and self-pursuits. It's a rejection that comes because I want to just live my life and do things my way. I want to pursue the things that I want. And I'm not going to pay attention to the eternal things. And that's, that's, a, that's a dangerous way to think. Because the deity of Christ is seen in his eternal sacrifice. And we see this with the Romans. They were doing their job and, you know, no doubt just kind of having fun with it. Because they didn't see the eternal perspective of what was happening. They were just having fun trying to 
relieve the boredom of their jobs. There are people today that are like the Romans. They don't necessarily hate Jesus or have anything against him. They're just living for their jobs and living for the next good times, living for the moment. And when you try to maybe tell them about Jesus, you know, religion is not their thing, right? It's, it's your thing, and that's fine, but it's not for me. And even when we tell them that Christ has suffered and died for their sins, then maybe they don't care. They reject Christ because they're not concerned about eternal matters, and they're just concerned about the pleasure of the moment. And so today, when we think about these questions, think about what happened to Christ. Even though he was spit on, hit in the face, scourged, crowned with thorns, mocked as a king, unjustly crucified, John shows us his glory and majesty. Jesus could have called down 12 legions of angels that would have immediately annihilated his persecutors. But he bore all of the abuse at the hands of sinners for the joy set before him of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. I like J.C. Ryle. He's an author. He said this. He said, Jesus, the innocent, wore the crown of thorns so that we, the, the guilty, might wear a crown of glory. He was clothed with a robe of shame and in contempt so that we might be clothed with his spotless righteousness and stand before God's throne in robes of white. He bore contempt so that we might receive praise and glory at the last day. John's portrayal of Jesus in these trials before Pilate shows that he was the king of the Jews. He presented him as bloody and mocked, wearing a purple robe. And Pilate said, behold the man. He uniquely is the representative man, the son of man, the second Adam. Pilate said, what is truth? Jesus is the truth. And he came to bear witness to the truth. This is not some made-up story. This is not some fantasy. This is not some children's book work. This is historically accurate truth about who Jesus is today and what he accomplished for each one of us. He didn't just make himself out to be the Son of God like it says. He really is the eternal Son of God. Three times Pilate declared Jesus to be innocent. He was truly the Lamb of God without blemish, sacrificed for our sins. And so we have to consider his life, his nature, his authority, his purpose, and ultimately his deity. And when we consider the truth of who Jesus was as given to us in God's word, then we can accurately and humbly answer this question. What will you do with Jesus? Who's called the Christ? Maybe you're here today or maybe you're watching online and, and you've questioned a lot of things. You've questioned in one way or another his nature or his purpose or his authority or maybe his deity. But these questions have answers from Jesus himself. And Jesus stood the test of his trials perfectly, becoming our substitute, sacrificing his life 
on our behalf so that we could not just know him, but that we could experience and live with him. And so today, we can make a choice to decide who Jesus is. And that decision is the most important decision to the most important question that we'll ever get asked. You know, our dads ask a lot of questions. But as dads, as men, as women, the question that we should be asking, not just our kids, but our world, is what do you say about the person of Jesus Christ? And you've got to let people respond because they've got to decide. They'll either say, let him be crucified, or they'll say, let me be crucified and receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for, uh, God, just the word of God that reveals to us the nature and authority and purpose and deity of your Son. And God, we thank you for the great grace that was extended to each one of us through the mercy and compassion and sacrifice of Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. And God, we thank you that we can come to this throne of grace and we can receive you as our personal Savior by faith. God, that there's nothing that we can do that you have done it all, God, that you are the perfect sinless, the perfect sinless sacrifice. And so, God, we submit our lives. We yield to you. We turn over authority and power and control, decisions, our feelings, our thinking, our will, our hearts. God, we turn these things over to you. God, that you may be glorified and that your name may be lifted up. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.